Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. As always, uh, we are your maitre d's of style, the co-hosts beyond comprehension, broadcasting from outer space on the dark side of the moon, Pastor Christopher Gillespie and Pastor Donovan Riley. That's right. And drinking coffee. Drinking coffee, drinking kombucha. Healthy, healthy. Getting those neurotransmitters open and firing. Nothing like uh, the sunrise on the moon. It's beautiful. <laughs> you also have to put up the sunshade, but especially at this time of the day, the way it reflects off of the uh, the flat Earth's surface. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Although, what did I hear last week or earlier this week that? Some conspiracy theorists now surmise that the moon is actually a base like the Death Star, and that's where the lizard people observe us from and control events on Earth. Oh, I think I've heard that before. Yeah, well, there you go. It's a little sci-fi, but... Uh, <laughs> it's a little out there. It's like that one Doctor Who episode where the lizard people are taking on human skin, right? They kill them yeah, and then they right. wear them. That's right. Yeah, it's a nice disguise. Or the episode where it's not lizard people, but all the political leaders are pigs. <laughs> Oh, yes. There was they're that. aliens, but they're pigs. I think there was a not-so-subtle uh, satirical component to that episode. Mm, maybe. Because they were eating people, too. Like pigs, too. They eat everything. As, as pigs do. That's right. So this week on the show, uh, we're going to dive into a little bit of history by Heiko Obermann, who, for a lot of people, up until maybe the last 10 or 15 years, when people stopped reading the biographies of Luther... <laughs> popularly speaking. Uh, Heiko Orman wrote a book called Luther, Man Between God and the Devil, mm. and it was published in 1982, and then again in 1989. The edition I have is 92 edition, published by Doubleday. Oh. Bantam Doubleday, Dell Publishing, Inc. Not a typical Lutheran scholarly publishing house. <laughs> well, and this book, though, would be considered a bestseller. Popular. This it was very popular, not just amongst Lutherans, but amongst all Christians and even historical scholars, secular historical scholars, because of the level of scholarship. It was really, if I remember right, at the time when it was published, there really wasn't a biography of Luther that was this well-researched and um, this well-expressed, readable. Yeah, I was going to say, there's the three-volume set from Baton, right? Which is a little art of Brecht. That's Brecht. right. Yeah, Biden did uh, the Reformation of the 16th Century, and here I stand. Oh, that's correct. Uh, yeah, so the Brecht, but that's three volumes. It's mm -hmm. pretty readable. Um, it is. It's just I, dense. And I, I think the scholarship still holds up. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, Professor Pless still recommends it in his bibliographies for classes. <clears throat> Excuse me, but other than I mean, there's there's Jim Kittleson's uh, Luther the Reformer which is pretty standard for any college or seminary class. And then the graduation from that would be up to Obermann, which uh, Kittleson was one of my advisors for my graduate work. He was my first advisor for my, my PhD. And uh, he and Obermann hated each other. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Kittleson was a dry drunk and uh, just a mean, cantankerous old man, uh, which if you're on his good side, not a problem. It was fun. He was a personality. He was a character. If you were on, his, on the other side, though, which was about 99.9% .9 of the people he met, then, uh, yeah, he was just an angry, dry drunk. I don't know. I had an affinity for the professors that uh, were the ones that nobody could get along with. Yeah, I did, too. I, I've, but that, I think, speaks to our personality more than anything, that when <laughs> someone says that guy is not 
someone you need to be around or that professor is difficult to get along with, or you shouldn't talk to that person. I almost instinctively run right to that person. Not just because you want to prove everybody wrong. No, just because if, uh, if most people don't like that person, there must be something about them. Yeah, they're actually, they're interesting. That's probably there it. it is. Yes, exactly. They're interesting. Because <laughs> yeah, somebody asked me this the other day too. Of um, at the academy, uh, why is it that I seem to get along so well with the ones that are even misfits for the jujitsu community? And it's just mm. the fact that I just think that people are super interesting. The weirder they are. Yeah. When I lived in Oregon, I used to have wonderful conversations with homeless people who were mentally ill just because I thought, well, this is fun. <laughs> this is, this well, is something I haven't considered. Yeah, exactly. And, and what's the, what's their story? I mean, how do you, how do you end up like that? You meet people who think that everyone's a, like, he, they can see demons, for example. Mm. I remember one homeless guy used to stand on the sidewalk and it was the, my path from my apartment to this coffee shop that I went to every day to play chess. And he would just yell at random people on the sidewalk. You're a demon. Oh, and everybody avoided him, of course. And he was 6'4", 6'5", 250, 260. He's a big, big dude. And so he's very physically intimidating as well and just screamed in your face. Hmm. And one day I just decided, you know what? I'm going to stop and I'm going to answer him. Oops. And he just stopped yelling when I said, he said, uh, are you a demon? He asked me, are you a demon? And I said, no, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus Christ is um, the savior of the world. And I believe he died for you. Hmm. And the guy stopped screaming and he just looked at me. And every day then after that, when I would walk past him, he would stop yelling and he would just acknowledge me. Uh, or you meet yeah, you meet the homeless guy who does believe lizard people rule the world or, and all these different things. But to me, these are the interesting people, the ones worth talking to. Because like you said, how'd you get here? Yeah. And maybe it's not explainable. and. You know, like you said, sometimes it's not. No, they're just mentally ill. But I've met people in, you know, homeless beggar, crack addicts, and bus stations who were um, like high power prosecuting attorneys who tried cocaine at a party once, and then two years later, mm. they're turning tricks in a bus station for crack. Yeah. So, it's, but also then is you know the fragility of man, right? Mm -hmm. How easily very we can much be so. broken and well, and for a guy like Kittleson. Mm -hmm. or Overman, these personalities that came out of the post-war generation. Um, there's a, yeah, there's a deep well of hurt and, and struggle in accomplishing what they did. Yeah. And so they resented other people who tried to trample or take the spotlight off of them. So where was Obermann? Where was he? Oh, well, or? he was everywhere. He hadn't, he ended up settling in the Southwestern United States. Really? Yeah. Cause he, especially after, uh, well, yeah, he wrote a lot of articles in the, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, because uh, that was kind of the conversation, journals, articles. And then once he started publishing books more regularly, uh, he just became one of those guys, one of those mm -hmm. Luther scholars that everyone wanted to so listen to. Speaking engagements. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that was the thing then, is that Opermann was a Luther scholar, like a legit Luther scholar, and had a, you know, a... a incredible wealth of information and knowledge at his disposal and could tap into that one of those minds that could just do that and so when you read luther god man between god and the devil not only does it read like a novel as far as its readability but the amount of information he packs into it and the way he explains luther's theology 
not as a, a doctrinal historian or a, a theologian of the church, but rather as a church historian, first and foremost, there's a certain objectivity to that. Hmm. Because he's not so much interested in Luther's doctrinal theology or the history of church doctrine. He's interested in the man and then how the man, you know, Luther's experiences formed his confession or at least drove him to his confession. And so we know about the famous crying out to St. Anne and going to the monastery. That's Lutheran lore. But as far as did you know that he believed growing up, he believed his, his neighbor was a werewolf. Oh, no, I missed that part. Yeah, because uh, his mother said she's a witch and she turns into a werewolf. Um, or just other things like that. Or, or the fact that he believed that mouse died every every winter and, and flies were a result of the, they were, you know, they were a result of the fall. Hmm. But this is what people believed in the 1500s. Yeah, so you were right. I looked at the little life here on Wikipedia and uh, it was born in Utrecht, went to U- Utrecht. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's Dutch, right? Ended up at Harvard, taught in mm-hmm. Harvard before he went to Germany, to Tübingen, and then came back to University of Oregon, or Arizona, yeah. excuse me, University Arizona. of Arizona. There you go. Teaching medieval and Reformation studies. That was yeah. uh, later in life. And he's written one of my favorite history books, which is called The Harvest of Medieval Theology, which really tackles an enormous subject, which is late medieval theology. And polity actually because he does talk about the mass and the practice of the mass and indulgences and penance and so forth uh it's a dense book but it's i think it's a must-have book for any anybody interested in the roots of the reformation yeah and he's got uh so that was on gabriel beale right Mm -hmm. uh primarily yep primarily and and nominalism then you Mm -hmm. have uh, a book on the virgin mary and evangelical perspective that sounds interesting i haven't seen that one yeah yeah uh, he so wrote a book, a uh, very short book called The Roots of Antisemitism, which is really worth reading. Yeah. Wurzlein des Antisemitismus. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, because for those of you who don't know, there's a quote from Luther when you walk into the Holocaust Museum in Washington. Yeah. And therefore, if you've ever talked to an Orthodox observant Jew, as I have, uh, as soon as they find out you're Lutheran, for a lot of them, that's game over. And it's true. Luther was used by the Nazis. To mm-hmm. justify the Shire cause. myth is what it's called, mm. which was essentially uh, Hitler hired a guy, one of the scholars he hired, the primary scholar who promoted and promulgated this myth was a man named Wiener, of all things. And um, his job, his task was to go through German history, Teutonic history, and it, it's essentially construct the myth of the Teutonic people to justify Hitler's program, mm. his socialist program. <laughs> And therefore, what came out of that, you had Luther, Goethe, and others, and then bringing in the Teutonic myths, Arthurian legends, uh, Swedish, Norwegian, Scandinavian myth, and piecing that all together, some Christian myth. It's true, Luther sent people to every corner of the earth to try and find religious artifacts, Holy Grail, the spear that pierced Jesus' side, these kinds of things. Nice. to To construct this myth that he could sell to the German people that would justify what they were doing. So Indiana Jones is not quite as mythological as we think? No, it's actually grounded in actual things that the Nazis tried to do or did do. Hmm. They did send people to the Himalayas to try and find secret cities and to Africa to find the Ark of the Covenant and all these different things. And yeah, it seems kind of crazy sci-fi now, but think about the power symbol again. Hmm. Think about constructing a, a myth, a nationalist myth 
because after World War One, where what was the state of morale in Germany? Lowest as as it had ever been, and by the end of the twenties, widespread corruption. Mm. Widespread corruption. Uh, Berlin was like Las Vegas times ten. And any vice, in fact, I think there's a show on Netflix called uh, Berlin Babylon. Is that it? Oh, which is essentially it's about a cop in 1920s, late 1920s, uh, Berlin, Germany. And uh, they don't. I mean, it's not actually it's not as decadent as Berlin was, but they try and do as much as they can within the context of a Netflix yeah. TV show. Babylon Berlin, Netflix. That's it. Yeah, Babylon Berlin, and it's a really good show because it does definitely ex- show the vices and the state of the city in those times. But so think about it in that sense too. There's widespread immorality, there's widespread uh, poverty, and there's widespread kind of a loss of identity after the First World War because of the amount of punishment that was handed out to the German people. And a guy like Hitler comes along and gives you not only hope, right? He, he comes with this message of how he's going to change the German nation and he promises to start, you know, Volkswagen and Fanta and all of these different um, companies and corporations to bring the economy back. And because again, after the First World War, people actually were taking wheelbarrows of cash to buy bread. That's not a that's not a hyperbole. They literally were taking wheelbarrows of cash to buy a loaf of bread. Yeah. And so a guy comes along and says, I'm going to change everything. And we're going to restore the German people to their place of pride. And, oh, by the way, one of the things they took away from us was our history and our sense of pride at being Germans. And so you construct a a myth Mm -hmm. that you can sell to your people. And for a people that are demoralized and crushed under the weight of poverty and so forth and feel like they're the butt of the rest of Europe's hubris, so to speak, um, it's very appealing. Yeah. So that, it's like make that, America great again. Exactly. I was going to say nas- kinds of catchphrases. Nationalism as uh, really a, a religious experience, right? Right. And I wasn't comparing the Trump administration to Nazis, so calm down. Okay. I was just saying catchphrases, those kinds of catchphrases, those appeals to nationalism. Oh, yeah. Well, terrific propagandists, right? Of course. Bread and circuses. And so every, every nation state builds this mythos george washington never told a lie honest abe lincoln we are always on the right side of history every country does this rome was was famous for this when the carthaginian wars what did we call it manifest destiny manifest destiny cuba's ours don't you know because we can see it that was uh jefferson and madison those guys Hmm. if we can see it it's ours (laughs) there's no limit to that no, it's just that's that's original sin. I want the I want that patch of dirt you're on, and I'll construct this narrative that justifies me taking it from you. Yeah, and we see that in our context. If you've been following, um, what do they call it? all the all the kind of revelations about the new world order, uh, yeah. especially during the Cold War, but then after the Cold War and how that mm-hmm. kind of play out. Now we're trying to create order, not by just you know conquest, but by economic conquest. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. We can't afford a, a a global war. Right. So we're gonna have a we're gonna actually just have a global economy, which of course uses the dollar because it's mm-hmm. superior to everyone else, mm-hmm. all the other currency. But yeah. Um, yeah, and if we can control the economy of the world, then then we can control everybody. Right. 
Right, exactly. And so each each nation state builds this mythos, they construct it, and it is to essentially elevate the people mm. in their own mind to a status that makes them just a little bit more virtuous, a little bit more noble than everybody else. Yeah. And then that justifies whatever it is that the state proposes. It's for the good of the people. Again, make America great again, make China great again, make Russia great again, whichever it is. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, and so the Chinese, but, the Chinese are already there. <laughs> so, oh, 100 percent. They have they've been there for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. So they they don't have to be quite as bold or brazen about it. Right. In fact, what do they call the Chinese? The sleeping dragon or something? Hmm. I don't know. The Chinese economy. I when, I don't know if that was in the 80s or 90s, but I I seem to remember some economists saying the Chinese economy was called the sleeping dragon. Uh, because of the fact that they had not yet gotten into the car market, for example, but that once Ford and Chevy and Dodge and all these other car companies were able to sell cars in China, biggest population of people on earth, that would that would be obviously awakening the sleeping dragon and it would just make the economy explode for these companies. <clears throat> so bringing it back around to uh, Oman then, that's the <laughs> tangent rabbit uh, that uh, squirrel. Squirrel, rabbit hole, trail, squirrel, pattern, animals. recognition, animals, BBC. Uh, no, but what happens then is uh, in recent years, the, the, the pool of Luther scholars has dwindled to uh, a trickle or a drop. And in the Missouri Synod, we have some scholars, uh, young and old. I think Eric Herman is at St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he teaches Luther there. Yeah. Uh, Bob is still, Bob Kolb, sorry, Professor Robert Kolb is still running around. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, we don't have a lot of Luther scholars running around and there's not a high demand for Luther scholars, ironically, during these anniversaries of Luther and the, and the Lutheran Reformation. But yeah, there was a the, little bit of a push last year, but not much. Yeah, it was a, it was a very small push, <laughs> very soft. Um, but in the 70s and 80s and even early 90s, there were a lot of Luther scholars to tap into. And I was fortunate to really catch most of those guys at the end of their careers or lives. So that was the 500th um, anniversary of Luther's birth, right? Early mm -hmm. 80s. Yeah. 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 And so you get guys like Robert Kolb, Stephen Osment, uh, Obermann, Brecht, uh, Kittleson, Byton, these guys. In fact, I think this book is actually dedica dedicated to Byton. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who's, um, a, who's the uh, Anglican in Oxford? I don't know if he's an Anglican, but he's at Oxford. Alistair McGrath? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, he's still running around, although he really has branched out into a whole bunch of different areas. Yeah, he's broad he's, Reformation era Well, he's his own stuff. brand now. He has his kids help him write books. Nice. Yeah, they're adults, obviously, but... Um, Cottage industry. It really is. And he's like Martin Marty. Martin mm -hmm. Marty's another guy. He just published his book after book. He publishes books of photographs, if he has to. Um, but he's just his own brand, and he knows whatever he publishes, people used to buy or will buy. Yeah, he lives about 25 minutes from here. Okay, yeah. And so with Obermann, then, it really is the top of the heap of all of that the, that Luther scholarship. Hmm. And so if you want to get a biography of Luther that's, that's really solid, and you don't want... Um, like Kittleson, like I said, Kittleson's Luther the Reformer, which is more of an introduction to Luther mm -hmm. uh, for people that maybe don't really know anything about him. The next step up from Luther the Reformer by Kittleson is this book. And yeah, I think Brecht is probably after that, the three-volume Brecht book, um, if you really want to go all in on Luther research. But yeah, if you just want one book to read that's readable, that you, you could use this for 
book studies or Bible studies at church if you wanted to sit down and read a book and really dig into Luther's theology and do it narratively so you can... I don't know. I just, I find this book remarkable in the sense, as like I said, as you read it, because it's so readable, the theology just kind of flows. Ah, okay. It, it doesn't feel like, okay, I'm going to talk about Luther's life. Okay, now I'm going to switch over and talk about theology. And now I'm going to switch back to his life and jump in and out. Rather, he weaves Luther's theology into... The theology isn't uh, abstraction, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. So when he talks, uh, we're going to be on page 172 to begin. But before this, he's talking a little bit about Luther's debate with Erasmus. And rather than just frame the argument, he frames everything around the argument. What led up to it, what happened while the argument was occurring, and then what happened as a consequence. And then within that, he also explains this is the argument. Right. But, so his, I think this is probably the case. Maybe it's too much, not too much to say with every theologian that their theological emphases are contextual. Mm-hmm. Life, Very much so. You know, life experiences, yep. who they're dealing with, um, right. you know, the broader uh, social or economic things mm-hmm. that are happening around them. So they, they're forced to struggle. I mean, think of, um, oh, who am I thinking? Uh, the, the one in the midst of the, uh, we were talking about Nazis, but in the midst of that era, uh, who was part of the conspiracy against Hitler uh, to assassinate mm-hmm. him. Who am I thinking of? Oh, uh, Bonhoeffer? Yeah, Bonhoeffer. I mean, very contextual theologian. Very, um, and, right. and so some of the things that he says might we might not actually even agree with, um, but mm-hmm. he's responding to a, a life situation that's very different than ours. It is. And he was Prussian. And he part was Part of a yeah. Prussian aristocracy, so he's a part of the Prussian Union. His family for sure was. They benefited from the Prussian Union. Therefore, he's very influenced by the Union of Calvinist and Lutheran thought. He was a student of Karl Barth. Mm-hmm. who was firmly right. reformed. Uh, but again, to understand Bart, Karl Bart as a theologian, you have to really understand the time. Right. And Karl Bart is doing theology in a context of war <laughs> and and the threat of invasion and, and uh, liberal Protestant theology is still hanging on to life. And so he's fighting against that. And there's a lot there. And like you said, with Bonhoeffer, he was a kind of a prodigy and tagged very early in life to be the flag bearer then for, you know, his church. Right. Um, he came to the Union Seminary in in the States, toured the States, was very influenced then by what he saw as far as the black experience mm-hmm. at that time. And That's right. the Niebuhr boys and what they ta- taught him. And then it was in the context of Germany. And um, then Nazism, the, the National Socialist Party, Democratic Socialist Party rising to power and right. all that that involved. And yeah, Bonhoeffer and, and Hermann Sazer are an interesting study in, in opposites. Right, because like the name of this show, as Lutheran as it gets, I mean, mm-hmm. Bonhoeffer carries the the branding Luther. Um, mm-hmm. But when you start to dig into it, I mean, how... Yeah, he's reformed. <laughs> how Lutheran really is he? Yeah, yeah, no, he's reformed. Well, for his for his time, he's very Lutheran. Yeah, that's true. In the sense of this is Lutheranism in Germany at that time. Yeah. Versus Saze, who we would say is the most Lutheran Lutheran, or I would argue is the most Lutheran Lutheran of the 20th century. Uh, he was a man out of time. Mm-hmm. That the definitions had been changed around him, and so he was. That's why he went to Australia because there was ultimately no place for him in Germany. Because he wasn't Lutheran. Yeah. And ironically, uh, there wasn't a place for him in the U.S. either. No, he wasn't because he was the wrong kind of Lutheran for us too. Oh, it says something I think about... it's called nepotism. <laughs> it says something about our generations, right? For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That After the fact, we celebrate him. But our grandfathers said he was crazy and he had a mental breakdown and he's not safe to teach our students. 
Um, there's very interesting letters uh, about this. That to if, to you know, Missouri from Zasa, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That were translated by Wisconsin Synod guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is. It, it's. I think it's super important. This point, uh, maybe one of the most important points that we can make is context matters. And so before we judge someone, especially someone who's not here to explain himself or herself. Try and do, if you're going to judge somebody, do due diligence and do some research and try and find out what you can right. about this person. And with the, like I said, with the trickle of Luther scholarship now, it makes it more and more difficult, but at least we have these sources from before. Yeah, and they're still generation. available. They're still being published. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So let's dive in because this is about uh, a subject that we often argue about, which is when what what Luther do you like best? Uh-huh. Do you like the young, scrappy evangelical Luther? Do you like the middle-aged, catechetical, let's organize the church Luther? Or do you like the old, crazy, sick-all-the-time Luther? Grumpy uncle. Grumpy uncle Luther. Um, so we're on page, we're going to start on page 172 at the bottom of the page. And again, this is Heiko Obermann, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. A further factor must be taken into account to understand Luther as an interpreter of the word and a defender of the quote-unquote scriptural principle. And by principle, he means a set of criteria for how to read a text. Okay, yeah. Like law and gospel would be a principle for reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. A paradigm Um, or a principle. yeah, Yeah, exactly. So the Bible is not a book. It is a whole library of writings extending across two millennia. Despite its variety, however, there is a center from which and toward which it must be interpreted. Luther's definition of this center was soon very popular among evangelical theologians. That's capital E, evangelical. And again, in the context of Germany in the 1500s, evangelical is not American evangelical, but rather they were called evangelicals before they became vilified as Lutherans. And it was and so Luther's preferred term, not Lutheran. It was, right. We're gospel people. We're gospel preachers. We are evangels. That's mm-hmm. what we do. We're about the gospel. So they were called evangelicals. Yeah. And so Luther's definition of this center was soon very popular among evangelical theologians. Quote, what proclaims Christ is the point of reference for exegesis. In fact, our beloved Dr. Norman Nagel, when mm-hmm. he breaks down the simple definition of the law and the gospel... He would say, God's word of law is whatever prevents Jesus being delivered for you, and the gospel is whatever delivers Jesus for you. Mm -hmm. Simply put, therefore, what proclaims Christ? Whatever gets in the way of Christ being proclaimed, that's law. Or, on the other side, it's sin and death and the devil. So it would be a confusion of law and gospel to to understand the law as something (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, that actually keeps us with Jesus or gets us closer to Jesus? Yeah, right. Exactly. Hmm. At least according to Dr. Nagel and Luther. (laughs) Yes, the law is whatever prevents Jesus being delivered to us, and the gospel is whatever delivers Jesus to us. It may may give you a Jesus, just not the Jesus uh, who dies for your sins. Well, it's Moses (laughs) disguised as Jesus. Oh. This is why in... um, his essay, his famous essay, uh, How Christians Ought to Regard Moses, Dr. Luther says, do not make Christ into a new Moses. Mm. Moses Mosesimus, he says in Latin. Not nice. only is he Moses, but he's Moses 2.0. Super Moses. Super Moses. That's And that's the danger, because, of course, that's what the late medieval Roman Catholic scholastics did. They turned Jesus into a, a super Moses. 
Mosissimus. Well, and that's pretty easy to do if you take the Ten Commands and then go to the Sermon on the Mount where he amplifies them, right? Right, and if, if you don't understand that those are about him. Uh, right. But yeah, if but you take yet. them as pure instruction, mm-hmm. um, yeah, then you, I, I could see how you could you, you could consider him a new Moses. Right. Well, and he was on a mountain too. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. See, it's basically the same thing. It's basically. Virtually identical. <laughs> uh, but this is the thing that I think we lose especially nowadays because we're so comfortable, is that Luther's distinction, his scriptural principle for interpreting the Bible, this is law, this is gospel, Mm. that, yeah, the old Adam sees the law as something bad and the gospel as something good because he sees the gospel as an empowering, well, power, really. And like you said, the gospel of Jesus is Moses 2.0. And, or in the early church, they they argued, well, the the Jews, Israel understood the law in a carnal way, in an earthly, fleshly sense. But we Christians have been shown the law in a spiritual way by Jesus. And therefore, we do the law right, where the Israel does it wrong. Right. So we, you'll see this manifest in our churches when we teach Jesus as moral example. Yes. Right. Yeah. How to live a better life. Look at Jesus, you know? He loved yeah, right. his neighbor, so love your neighbor. Yeah. Right, exactly. Because no other religion teaches anything similar to that. Mm-mm. That was sarcasm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what proclaims Christ is the point of reference for exegesis. And by Christ, God's we word. mean Messiah, right? The one who yes. dies to save Jesus as Savior, right. Mm-hmm. Self-giving, gift, promise, Savior. Correct. So you have God's word of law, God's word of gospel. It is the word of God, but it's distinguished. Distinct. When the law is preached, the gospel is silent. When the gospel is preached, the law is silent. You can't preach both at the same time. Oh, I think I jumped ahead here. I see that Oberman's going to explain what I just said. Okay, Okay, good. So Luther himself clarified this eloquent formula. Mm. What impels you to Christ crucified is at the heart of the scriptures. The Apostle Paul's principle in the first epistle to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks, foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, 23. Since a number of Luther scholars have begun dating the Reformation breakthrough relatively late, nowadays we date it to eh, 1528, 1538, (laughs) Lutheran confessional documents. Right. But uh, at this time, yeah, they kept moving the goalpost. 1521 was a popular day to settle on. Yeah, I think uh, I've suggested that maybe the 500th anniversary of the Reformation should be the presentation of the Augsburg Confession, right? Fifteen. I mean, for the Reformation, for sure. As far as like right? Luther being Luther, I would argue 1518, which he's about to address. I mean, Heidelberg is really when that's Luther's coming out party, not 1517. We, we've we so muddied the water on the on the nailing those theses to the church door. As being the definitive moment, right? Yeah. It's just, it's so historically not true and inaccurate. Drives me nuts. But... Dating the Reformation breakthrough relatively late in the vicinity of spring 1518, the first psalm lectures, 1513 to 1515, have stopped being of central interest. Yeah, they're pretty rough. <laughs> He's definitely an Augustinian. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah. But within the context of the dictata, those early psalms lectures, you can see him wrestling. Mm-hmm. All the way into 1517, though, in those Romans lectures. Those Romans lectures... When he comes out of those Psalms lectures, he's primed now. He understands what righteousness is, that it's not the righteousness with which we approach God, right? but rather the righteousness with which God declares us to be righteous for Christ's sake, that yeah, God we, makes you righteous You see that people. dialectic tension, I guess, mm-hmm. but uh, law, gospel, grace, mercy, and 
you know, judgment. Right. Back and forth in the Psalms, maybe not as clearly uh, expressed as we would in our sermons. No, because he's still working with the categories he was given mm-hmm. by his professors and oh, what he sure. grew up with. So he's a good catechized Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. But he understands that scripture is starting to contradict his t- his catechetical upbringing. His, and, and so his confirmation verses don't hold water for him anymore, so to speak. And yet it takes him four, five, six, seven years actually to really... Because it's not just that he's saying, well, it seems like scripture is contradicting what uh, the Lombard teaches, for example, or Gabriel mm-hmm. Beale or somebody. He's got to find different language. Yeah. It's it's like if you took the catechism away from me and then asked me to apologize for the faith to somebody who does, isn't a Christian, and I can't use the language of the catechism or the language of the historic Lutheran liturgy or something like that. Or the creeds, yeah. Or the creeds, exactly. It, could I do it? Mm, I'd need some time. Yeah, it'd be hard to find the words, right? Right, because we function in such a shorthand way with our catechetical language, creedal language. And, and you see this when we do it uncritically. We just throw words around as if we all understand what they mean. Yeah. It's not that the, that the creeds or the catechism, yes, they're shorthand. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they could just be, you know, rote memory that, that lack, you know, meaning, meaning or substance right. Um, right. for some. But, you know, or they could just become cliche, I suppose. Well, it's like the word grace we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. God's grace, you know, God is rich in grace, abundant in grace. Well, what is grace? What do you mean by grace? Do you mean Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> do you mean a substance, a thing? Like, what is grace? Yeah, ask an evangelical, uh, modern evangelical, mm-hmm. ask a, yeah. a Roman, uh, you're going to get very different answers. Right. If exactly. they have an answer at all. Right. And so you grew up with a certain uh, lexicon of terms, and you use them because they're what are presented to you and it's what you have. And then all of a sudden you start lecturing on the Psalms, for example, which again, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but Luther does not come to justification by faith alone by reading Romans. He comes to it through the Psalms and Romans fleshes it out for him. Yeah. The second set of lectures, right? Not the 1315, but the... No, he's got it in 15, 13, 15. He's, he's there. He, he, he recognizes that he's wrong about the righteousness of God and he recognizes justification is there in the Psalms. That's what really launches him into Romans. Hmm, okay. And then why those Romans lectures really take off for him. Because once he hits Romans coming out of the Psalms, that's what gives him the language of justification then. Oh, I see. So it backfills what he'd already yeah. discovered. Okay. Right. And so it's not love, like faith is fulfilled by love, which is a Roman teaching, but rather that love is a fruit of being justified, mm-hmm. faith alone. Mm-hmm. And that's already there in the Psalms um, because the language of the psalmist is there using that language because who's running the verbs in the Psalms? Who's running the verbs of salvation? Mm. God is. And this really follows Luther up because he really thought that, well, we cooperate with grace. Yeah, but but it's pretty infrequent in the Psalms that that we're the subject <laughs> and the one and doing the And usually that's the confession of sin. You look at Psalm 51, the way that David runs the verbs. When it comes to a confession of sin, he runs the verbs. Yeah. And then when it comes to salvation, he flips it. Right. If we are the subject, yeah, it's either to confess sin or maybe praise and thanksgiving. Kind sure, of just right. A right. Respo- it's consequent. Uh, yeah, yeah, response um, to what God has done. Right. So, a confession of sin would be a consequence of the law being preached to us, mm-hmm. and praising God would be a consequence of the gospel being preached there to us. There you go. Yeah. 
there we go. So this is the thing then, is that in 1513 through 15, yeah, he's struggling as an Augustinian monk with these categories and these terms, these principles, as Oran would call them. And yet he recognizes in those in the language of the psalmist and the psalms, God's running the verbs of salvation here. And mm-hmm. it doesn't really seem like I get any of them. And yet I've been taught my whole life that I have to cooperate with grace. <laughs> to yeah. whom much is given, much is to be expected. Yeah, the collaboration, cooperation, these are... Yeah. These are terms of action right so we're mm-hmm. exactly we're which is why actors. then when he gets after erasmus in 1525 erasmus being kind of a loosey-goosey roman catholic theologian <laughs> so to speak a lot of roman modern roman catholic scholars won't even claim that erasmus was roman catholic not even in his um, own day yeah no not really i mean again cardinal Cajetan, Cajetan mm-hmm. was the guy the thomistic scholar of his day but unfortunately he and luther never had a knockdown drag out debate in public yeah that would have been pretty sweet it's but nonetheless, cage fight, right? Erasmus argues for the free will out of this understanding that grace empowers and enables us. Hmm. Yeah. Whereas Luther says, nope, sorry. It's He uses the analogy in the bondage of the will of the horse with two riders, which is from the Psalms. Whereas the grace is powering enabling, that that's thoroughly Augustinian, right? Thoroughly, it's, yeah. yeah. It's like a spark divine spark yeah, or the, the divine spark that needs to be inflamed by grace mm-hmm. the burning heart of jesus imagery oh yeah so the first psalm lectures have stopped being of central interest for most lutheran scholars who want to date the reformation breakthrough later usually around spring 1518 again heidelberg and beyond mm-hmm. although i think heidelberg was november but uh this is warranted insofar as nothing of the freedom of a christian as a consequence of justification by faith can yet be felt in these lectures so there you go. Freedom of Christians, 15, 19, 1521. Don't remember. It's late. Later. It's not. That was 1521. It was a, I mean, yeah, I could be 20s. Let's say it's 20s. I'm guessing 1521. On the freedom of the Christian uh, or Christian liberty. Lots of different translations of that title. Mm-hmm. Uh, treaties, November 1520. 20. We were both wrong. Split the difference. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's after Babylonian captivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just by a month. But mm-hmm. <laughs> good night. Just, he's writing a lot of stuff. He is. He's cruising from again from Heidelberg into 1521. The stuff that he is lecturing on, and the stuff that he is producing, is amazing. Yeah, and, and you're right. Mount. You're, you're working on a, on a book, right? And uh, right. Did I just announce it? I guess I did. Yes, and you did. <laughs> it it's slow That's going, right? And here's uh-huh. Luther, and he's just he's like prolific. Well, yeah, he's. He's working, in 1520, he's working essentially without a Bible. He's got the Vulgate, and he's got the Greek and the Hebrew in front of him, but he doesn't really, he's just not, he's just starting to get an inkling of, maybe I need to translate this for the German people, mm-hmm. which comes out of Coburg, but right. later, 1521. But um, yeah, so he's he's memorized the Bible. He's had to memorize all of these theologians, because he can't just run down to the library, to the stacks, and grab the book when he needs a reference. And he's just, and he's writing with quill and ink on parchment, and yet he is tearing it up. Amazing. Nonstop. So, yeah, there's nothing of a freedom of a Christian in these early Psalms lectures, sure. Luther apologizes in his 1545 Ruchblich, the gates of paradise were open to him much later. Hmm. Which scholars also argue about whether that wasn't just Luther sitting at the dinner table 
kind of creating his own hagiography. <laughs> I, I can't imagine him doing exactly, that. Exactly. As Luther was wont to do in his later years. <laughs> Just like, he's a storyteller. He really is. Oh, big time. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the stories have a way, like memory, of being a little right. fungible, right? Right. Yeah. There's there's at least three or four different tellings of his conversion to mm-hmm. the monastery. Right. And uh, yeah, he does that. We like the most spectacular ones, right? With lightning and thunder and lightning, rain, yeah. and there's there's one where he was he fell and stabbed himself in the in the carotid artery or whatever that what's that artery the femoral artery that oh and it's like like yeah that he might have nipped his femoral artery because in the telling um, by people who knew him the, his friend who was with him propped him up against a tree so his feet were up in the air so he would bleed to death and then rode to town and then the storm came and he was contemplating it was and then I think actually it is Obermann or Brecht who point out that this was actually probably two or three different events. And they that, just get conflated in his memory. Yeah, they just get co- they coalesce over time into one grand narrative. But that it wasn't one moment where Luther just decided I'm going to go to the monastery. It was a series of events. Hmm. Which, and I can speak anecdotally about this to myself. The older I get, the more I recognize that I didn't just get converted when I was 24 years old. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there were numerous things that led me to that moment. Um, but yeah, when you're near it, it's easy to look at it and go. This is the thing. This is the the apocalyptic event that sent me in this direction. Now, hmm. it's, it's Versus, more like it's probably more like you slide into faith, right? <laughs> or you're slid yeah, into for sure. it, right? Yeah, it's more like a creep, <laughs> <laughs> just dragged, kicking and screaming. But yeah, yeah, you no, know, it is for sure because you, yeah, you start to recognize people and events and experiences that at the time again seemed uneventful or unimportant because you weren't they weren't. A priority to you they weren't of mm. great value to you so you didn't really prioritize them in your mind in your memory but then after the fact you look back and i think i've said this before too on the show it was two or three years ago before a memory kind of shook loose from my unconscious or subconscious that i had forgotten that i was reading a brief history of time by stephen hawking i was reading a lot of physics and science mm. hard science yeah and reading a lot of philosophy and that that was really what caused me to believe in a higher power or god yeah. It wasn't theology. It was reading about physics and astrophysics in particular and tachyon particles and cell um, mito- uh, osmosis or mitosis. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. osmosis. Uh, and it was all of these mitochondria. It was these things like that. that Metachlorians. Me t- Metachlorians. There you go. Um, <laughs> but it was yeah, theta waves. But it was all of these different, these different things coming out of the hard sciences, which I can understand why... It wasn't something that I had recalled earlier because in a conservative church body, we don't really appreciate science <laughs> at all times. Um, we're sometimes hostile towards science. Mm. And yet when I got clear of of that conversation and I happened to just be reading something by Stephen Hawking, that shook loose. I was like, oh, that's right. I was reading this when I, when I came to believe in God. Right, because somebody like Hawking uh, is, is driving one to consider reality as being far more intricate than sometimes yes. we like to think of it as, um, right. and complex, infinitely complex, but elegant but, is. The but way also, that yeah, ele- talks about com- it. complex elegance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and maybe design, you might say. Although mm-hmm. I think that's a loaded kind of expression now. Intelligent design. Yeah, it is. Um, but I, I like uh, uh, Missouri Synod astronaut uh, did a book. He was uh, mm, on the space really? station. Yeah, and he just took photographs from space of Earth. And and CPH published it actually. It's a it's a it's a terrific little book. Just a confession hmm. of 
you know, here's what the Earth looks like from space. Right. And, you know, uh, yes, and he was actually in space. He wasn't it on. It like a plate. It looks, it looks like that. Uh, but just just to kind of witness the magnificence, the mm-hmm. the and the elegance and the right. beauty of of God's creation from from mm-hmm. a different vantage point, um, does that you know it, mm-hmm. it can be kind of a not faith formative but at least informative that there's right. something bigger than you. <laughs> well, this is a hangover here. of um, the 1800s, what was called liberal Protestant theology or natural theology, which bled into the first part of the 20th century, uh, a guy named Emil Emil Bruner. Mm -hmm. He was a famous proponent of natural theology. He actually fought with Karl Barth, who I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, in a famous essay entitled Nine, as in no. That was Karl Barth's response to Emil Bruner, arguing that you can come to faith through nature. That simply going for a nature walk will not only make you aware that there's a God, but it can lead you to true faith. To which Bart went, nine, no, ixnay on the uh, nature argument. And in fact, if you read Christopher Hitchens' book uh, about growing up in in England and his teacher taking the class on nature hikes and explaining the glory of God from nature, he would then go home at night and on the evening news, he would see things like the riots in Northern Ireland, or he Mm -hmm. would see images of war and destruction and famine and disease from other parts of the world and go back to school and ask his teacher, well, what about those people over there? What about this? And his teacher would simply explain here, no, look at the flowers, right? Look at the clouds, evidence of, of God's glory. And he just could not reconcile these two contradictory views. Well, that's what people say like, oh, it's going to be such a glorious event to climb Everest, right? Well, never mind Mm -hmm. the 14 ton poop problem on the mountain. Yeah, there is that. Or just the frozen dead bodies you have to walk past on the way up. Yeah, you have to walk past dead people to get up the Mm -hmm. mountain. It's like, uh, yeah, this thing that you consider so glorious and wonderful experience, um, apart from that little two-week window when you can make Mm -hmm. make the climb, it's pretty deadly. Yeah. Well, it's not so much anymore because it has become a tourist attraction because now so many people want to climb Everest that they've figured out the the quote unquote safest way up and there's so many people that take groups up and it's actually become quite easy to get to Everest. Yeah. I mean there'll because be freaks. All those people that, that are stuff. frozen on the side of the mountain figured out the way up. Yeah. Yeah, and, and when when not to go up. When not, to, yeah, exactly. When not to go up, when you have to start, when you have to come back down. And yeah, more and more people are climbing Everest now to the point where it's not even an event. Well, how many base camps are there on the way up? Oh, I can't even imagine now. Yeah. There's so many. So you don't, I mean, you can, you can, you you have to be relatively quick in case there's a storm, but. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Right. But, but, but it's a science now. They've got it down to a science. Nice. And it is a money-making industry climbing Everest. And like you said, the amount of waste and pollution and garbage on Everest now is enormous. Hmm. And at one time, about 20 or 30 years ago, a Japanese company tried to buy the top of Mount Everest to put a, a kind of a restaurant on the top of it. <laughs> right. But the point being is that, yes, that yeah. same mountain that's so beautiful and incredible to witness mm-hmm. um, also can kill you. Exactly. There's no forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Everest does not forgive. Which is the problem with nature as faith mm-hmm. creating. <laughs> right. It can, it can, maybe it can lead you to some sort of faith, worship of nature, mm-hmm. uh, but that it can destroy that faith in a moment. Right. Well, and this is the problem that they had in the late 1800s was they had domesticated nature in mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. You could go for a walk in the woods. You could be, live in Switzerland or Germany and go for a walk in the woods and not really have to be attacked, worry about being attacked by a lion or a bear. Because the Romans wiped most of them out. But it's safe. It's just like the United States today. It's safe to go hiking in most parks because they've been cleaned out. 
and they spray them to kill the mosquitoes and the paths are well-groomed and everything that goes with it. But if you go like to Montana, Northern Montana and walk 20 miles into the woods, yeah, there's grizzly bears and they don't care no. about you, your food. And so this idea that you can come to faith through nature has been argued in every generation. I think that might lend itself a little bit then in the present tense to our resistance to first article stuff, as we would call it, mm. to really looking at, yeah, the fact of the matter is that, as Luther said, when you believe that Jesus is your savior, that he had died and risen from the dead for you, even the birds can preach the resurrection in the sense of faith hears everything as a proclamation of Jesus. Well, Jesus does that too, you know, as the seed falls to the ground and dies. Yeah. And, you know, and he uses that a picture of his own death and resurrection, right. right? Well, in the Psalms, the psalmists constantly remind us that the waves crashing and the birds singing and everything preaches the glory of God. It mm -hmm. preaches the creator. But only through faith in Christ, which, is, which comes through the proclamation of the gospel. So therefore, again, you need an external word that is given to you that you receive from outside of yourself that brings you to faith because it's the work mm -hmm. of the Holy Spirit. And we don't like the way the Holy Spirit works because we don't want a preacher because one, that guy over there seems kind of sinful and unclean. And two, he's out of my control. Hmm. And I would prefer that the Holy Spirit live in my heart because then I know where he's at at all times and I can control and manipulate him. Maybe not um, only out of my control, but just out of control in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, out of control in general. And and this is what is called enthusiasm, God within-ism. Hmm. The word enthusiasm, entheos-ism, God within-ism. And we've lost that in the present tense, of course, because an enthusiastic person is just an excited person. But on, in the second. good old days, enthusiasm meant, uh, as Dr. Luther would say, you swallow the Holy Spirit feathers and all. <laughs> and so this is no small thing then to have uh, a preacher sent to you because this is the way in which the Holy Spirit chooses to work in a particular person, in a particular place, at a particular time for the benefit of the sinner. And so as a consequence, as a consequence, then what Luther is getting after is there's a certain enthusiasm in late medieval Roman uh, scholasticism, Roman Catholic scholasticism, because we cooperate, we work with grace hmm. and that grace is infused into us. That is, it's pumped into us. And then once it's pumped into us, it strengthens us in faith and increases love for our neighbors so that we can actually be obedient to the will of God by way of the commandments. And so, interestingly enough, then, uh, we would label as enthusiasts those who believe they can be saved by being obedient to the commandments. Right, because they take the commandments as being um, something that's... Um, they internalize them. Yeah, yeah. These are these which are the, is, these are these are the ways that I save myself. Right, which is why the Pharisees were the only sect of Judaism to survive the destruction of the temple. Huh. Because they they didn't need sacrifice. They did exactly. They didn't need uh, God coming to them in grace and mercy. Exactly. Hmm. So it persists in every generation. Well, and they didn't necessarily even need the word. No, because they had the word in their heart. Huh. As Paul himself argues, right, that the Jews have it written on tablets of stone, and the Gentiles have it written in their heart. All are without excuse before the throne of God then. You all know what the, the law is. But none of you do it from uh, a pure, spontaneous uh, freedom. You all do it because of compulsion. Yeah, we were talking before the show about how the, in our context, even though it's written on our heart, we've gotten very good at ignoring it. 
Yeah. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So the the whole natural law that they're like, for example, um, you can look at most cultures worldwide, historically even, and see Mm -hmm. monogamy, right? Uh, Yeah. You know, marriage and maybe not necessarily monogamous marriage, look at the Old Testament, but at least marriage and uh, for the sake of children and family. Marriage. Yeah. You can see that, uh, which we would say is in the Sixth Commandment. Mm Mm-hmm. But yet, uh, <laughs> in our context now, we've we've figured out a way to get kind of really ignorant of that of of, mm-hmm. of, of our history, or tr- or at least an attempt to transcend what we already know in our heart to be right. Right. Well, and this is Paul's point in Romans eight that before the throne of God, our heart accuses or excuses us. Mm, okay. But it can't stop itself from defending and justifying us. Or, as one person um, made a comment, I've kind of used it now to define the bondage of the will. What is the bondage of the will? Your heart always wants something, and your mind always justifies what your heart wants. Oh, I'm really good at that. Oh, for sure. I, I, mean, I go to Amazon like every morning to see what the oh. price is today, because at some point it's going to drop that extra, you know, five or six dollars. I can't go on Amazon anymore because I do that constantly. <laughs> like, oh, I need this box set of CDs that I don't have a CD player for. I can make this work. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. I'll figure out a way. Three hundred dollars later, you're like, "Honey, I got I got a CD player that holds a hundred CDs." I was in and grade heard- school when I bought uh, my laserdisc player. Not to date myself, oh yes, I was super laserdisc. geeky, but I couldn't stand VHS. I had a super mm-hmm. VHS uh, player, but I didn't like tapes. I wanted I wanted optical disc media, right? Mm-hmm. So I get the laserdisc, and uh, but I how did I do that? I bought a laserdisc, and then I needed to buy a player. Right, I gotta to get, watch it. I gotta get the player, man. I've got the laser disc now. Right, and For then those I had you to have... who don't know that's a CD the size of a record. Well, it's not even a CD because it wasn't digital. At the no, beginning. I'm saying though it looks like a CD, but it's the size of a record. It's a giant platter. <laughs> right, and it was really cool when I got a two sided laser disc player, so you didn't have to flip it in the middle of the movie. Ooh, nice. <laughs> Ugh, the dark ages <laughs> of digital media. Uh, it wasn't yes. digital. It was analog. Was it really? Yeah, it was an anal. It was really? an optical media. It was. Yeah. They later on they f- they figured out how to put a digital soundtrack on it. I just remember that the only reason that uh, my friend got it was so that we could watch computer animation. I got it to watch Star Wars in widescreen. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Yeah, but this is what we do. The old Adam does this. I always joke that my mor- my moral uh, compass is based on one question: Will this make a good story in four years? <laughs> And uh, as I've gotten older, I've decided that that's not the best way to proceed with life. Because <laughs> I've got a lot of good stories that always usually end up with, and then I went to the hospital. Yeah. Quote, unquote, good. <laughs> good stories. And then I burned half my face off. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I've forgotten that one. Yeah, that was a couple of years ago. That was a good one. Uh, painful. My, yeah. Natural law said you probably should check the wind better next time. Yeah. That's also and, when you learned about all sorts of... Uh, a fancy treatment and healing I remedies. Yeah, I learned about manuka honey and how to treat burns with honey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had coconut oil and I don't remember coconut what else. Oil, yeah. Actually, I healed. I have no scars whatsoever. No, no side effects whatsoever. I burned all the skin off my hand, my right hand, and then I burned all the skin off half my face and mm-hmm. my head. Yep. Yep. It all came back. And uh, yeah, there you go. So if you ever want to rejuvenate and replenish your skin, burn it off <laughs> and then regrow it. Yeah, not what's happening out west. That's it's not the, the way to go. It's the most painful experience you'll probably ever go through in your life. But mm-hmm. yeah, but I digress. So let's drive, drive, drive back in. Luther apologizes in his 15, 1545 Ruchblick. The gates of paradise were opened to him much later. But the early, the early lectures on the Psalms are irrefutable proof that Luther expected to see the word of God crystallize out of the words of the scriptures, a concept that goes far beyond the establishment of a scriptural principle. 
Hmm. Kind of like he's lecturing on the Psalms. He recognizes in the Psalms who's running the verbs. He recognizes that his education may have not been entirely faithful to the teachings of scriptures. Mm -hmm. And yet he doesn't have necessarily the law gospel distinction as we would define it. He might have a gospel law distinction, which was very popular. It's popular in in reform circles, of course. But in late medieval Roman Catholicism, that's also a way to read the Bible is it's gospel, then law, rather than law, then gospel. Mm -hmm. So, for example, then the gospel would be the penultimate word and the law is the ultimate word of God. Mm -hmm. And And, and you could get that. You could pull that out of the Psalms. If you don't sure, see it absolutely. as dialogue, yeah. back and forth yeah, like dialogue. Psalm 90, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses. Mm-hmm. It's extremely heavy on the law, and there's a verse that could be considered promise or gospel. Right. right. But the psalmist isn't quite as careful as we might be in our preaching um, to leave with a word of blessing, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, because he didn't go to seminary. <laughs> and, and so maybe he formulates his confession differently than we do. Yeah. And yet what Luther is then wrestling with or what Obermann's pointing to is that Luther is aware now that this is coming out in his lectures and he's aware that this stuff is there and he's struggling with it. He's wrestling with it. He's wrestling with the tradition that he was raised up in. He's wrestling with his seminary training, but he hasn't really codified it yet. Yeah. He may not have the uh, the paradigm, but, but he right. does have what Dr. Nagel <coughs> says you know, let the word of God have his way with you. Yes, exactly. So he's yeah. he's allowing God's word to inform his theology. Mm-hmm. There we go. That's a good way to say it. Uh-huh. And so he expects to see things kind of come together, crystallize out of the words of scriptures. He just hasn't gotten to that principle of law and gospel yet. Mm-hmm. The precept that to medieval scholastics provide it with a methodological basis and argued about the consequences the principle would have for ecclesiastical tradition. And here it is. This is a this is a very, very fat sentence. The precept that to medieval scholastics who provided the interpretation of scripture with this methodological basis, maybe the fourfold interpretation of scripture, mm-hmm, right. right? It's anagogical, allegorical. Um, what are the other ones? Anagogical, allegorical. Historical. Historical and... Which would be context. What's the fourth one? Don't remember. Math, yeah, I used we, to have we don't. Memorized. Yeah, we don't learn these. Uh, we don't. But well, at least we yeah, don't follow a, this method anymore. Oh, yeah. Hopefully not. Um, but essentially, every biblical text had four different meanings that you could suss out. Can yeah. you look that up for me? I'm working on it. Thank you. Uh, Actually, I have a book in at my office that's uh, a history of the interpretation of Scripture in the Middle Ages that talks about this. Yeah. So allegorical. We said. What was the other one? Allegorical, literal. anagogical, ah, literal. literal. There it is, literal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have literal, you not not historical. So literal, simple. Anag- the grammatical meaning of the words. Right. Exactly. Anagogical. That's the one that has to do with the future. So it's prophetic. Yep. yep. Tip, typological. So that's. Uh, oh, that's right. Typological. That's 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 allegorical. Yeah. Typological and allegorical are, are yeah. synonymous. You're just talking yep. about how, um, you know. Well, this is how Jesus is like Moses, right? Like we were yeah, exactly. About. And or then, this is actually about the church, not about Israel. And then the other one is tropological. That's the one. Thank which you. I always think of like, uh, you know, having a, not a martini. What do you want to say? What's the coconut drink? I don't know all my liquor. Whatever. Pina palm, colada? Yeah, pina colada and a palm tree. But uh, tropological meaning like the moral of the story. There we go. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to tie in tropological to tropical and then. Yeah, that's where I was going with it. It doesn't help <laughs> me remember it, but anyway. That's right. I'm with you. Yeah, so think of 
oh, I don't know, like wisdom literature, right? Mm -hmm. Book yeah. of Proverbs. But to approach sure. Jesus that way too, approach all the texts. Well, just way. imagine reading the Song of Solomon mm -hmm. with this method of interpretation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Right, but, well, it's, it's, uh, but it's approaching mm -hmm. what Jesus says and like, like he's Aesop, right? Yeah, yeah. Like there's some, there's some superlative truth that's going to come mm -hmm. out of it. And so think about that. This is the way you were taught to interpret scripture. This is the way all your professors and all the priests and monks that you encounter interpret scripture. And you're lecturing on the Psalms and this falls apart. And instead of the fourfold, he goes straight to the grammatical and says, the simple grammatical meaning of these words seem to contradict both the anagogical, typological, and tropological interpretations. Or, as Luther will argue at some point, they seem to explain away scripture more than they seem to interpret it. Ah, yes. The wax nose analogy he uses. Yeah. It allows us to bend scripture whichever direction we need it to go to. Well, I mean, there are difficult portions of scripture, which he'll acknowledge, mm -hmm. uh, but there are clear passages of scripture that don't need the fourfold method to understand what's right. going on there. Right. You know, just take him and at this, his word. Uh, right. The literal, the literal is enough, yeah. actually. <laughs> and this is why law, gospel, the distinction of law and gospel tears down this fourfold method. Because he's essentially saying, God speaks his word of law, this is what it does. God speaks his word of gospel, this is what it does. He's very practical in that sense. The word of God does what it says it does. It doesn't need us to interpret it in four different ways to get to the point. And that's the thing that's missing from the late medieval method is that God's word is like an idea that's in search of an interpretation or meaning. And it's up to us then to inject it with this fourfold meaning versus, by the way, go check out the way that Wesley does biblical exegesis, right? Very similarly fourfold method. And yet Luther says, no, it's law or it's gospel. It's the word of God, but it's spoken in two ways. And the and like you said, he'll say, well, if this part of scripture is confusing or or seems ambiguous or, or is cloudy, that's uh, original sin, not the fact that God is ambiguous or, or confusing. And therefore, go find a clear word of scripture to interpret that word. And this this is um, innovative, I, I, I think. Oh. Big time. Yeah. For sure. And so, I mean, we have to respond to that a little bit because I think we're still accused, especially as Lutherans, of, of kind of importing uh, right. meaning into the text. Eisegesis. Well, and, and a big example of this is when uh, Luther says that we're saved by faith alone. And so mm -hmm. Rome would say- And he well, adds the word alone. The alone. Oh, yeah. He added it in his German Bible, right? It's not even in yeah. there. Um, nope. He says, no, it's implied. Um, right. It's obvious. He, he actually argues it's obvious according to the spirit of the text. Mm-hmm. That it's only faith that justifies us. Yeah. Because if we are saved by faith apart from works of the law, and Luther, again, is thinking categorically, it's this or that, it's thesis, antithesis, it's black or white, there's no synthesis of these two things. Therefore, if we're saved by faith alone apart from works of the law, that means, I'm sorry, we're saved by faith apart from works of the law, then that would mean that we're saved by faith, only faith apart. Because if it's not apart, if it's apart from the works of the law, well, then the only thing that can save us is faith. Therefore, the alone, as you said, is implied. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, again, to omit that uh, mm -hmm. that term, a line, right, in German. To, yeah. to omit that from the text, that was quite an intentional effort, you know, to allow oh, for, so. for some wiggle room, right? To say that, right. well, there's other ways. And in our modern context now, it's just to say, well, uh, and Rome does this, well, Aristotle, you know, was a godly mm -hmm. man. 
Like, mm. wait a minute, he has no faith in Christ. <laughs> right. Well. Or he didn't really believe in, in the gods either. Yeah. Because of his argument about fate. But clearly, um, you know, because he was so wise in an earthly yeah, sense. and a great moral teacher. And a great moral teacher, um, you know, that there'll be there'll be a way for him to, to slip right, in. A righteous pagan is what he's called. Yeah. And you're like, how... Well, this is this is why we can't because have that. If you say by works, then yeah, there are certain pagans who are so works righteous mm-hmm. that God will make an exception for them. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, that's the fall, or that's not the fallout, but that's the consequence of being so um, dogmatic is that you get pushback mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. people want to have more wiggle room than, than right. Simply well, this faith is actually a good point too. Since we're on it, I've received emails asking. If I don't like the ESV, for example, because I'm constantly dogging the ESV translation, <laughs> what Bible do I suggest? And so here it is, folks. I'm on I'm on air. The reason I dog on the ESV is because I've read Luther's German Bible. And especially in the Old Testament, what you discover is that Luther, he's essentially like a bloodhound or like a pig digging for truffles. Mm-hmm is he's hunting for Jesus under every word of scripture. Mm-hmm. And the thing that he does in his Bible then is he will boldface and capitalize every reference that is specifically Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you read the Old Testament, he doesn't, for example, he doesn't render God's word as a neuter pronoun because God's word is Jesus, therefore it's a masculine pronoun. So in Luther's Bible, it's very clear then that the second person of the Trinity is active and present for Israel, because Luther goes out of his way to stress this. In modern English translations, which are primarily Reformed, not Lutheran, in fact, they're all Reformed, not Lutheran, um, although they're all based on Tyndale, who lived in Wittenberg for a time, um, they don't do that. They take the grammatical, literal rendering of the text, so to speak, and will render those pronouns neuter instead of masculine, which strips the context out out of the text. I can see the argument that that Luther is almost creating a study Bible without notes, right? Yes. Oh, but I think it is for sure because, like I said, he boldfaces. So even if you don't understand German, you can open Luther's the 1911 version because in the 70s they basically went through Luther's Bible and turned it into, well, not Luther's Bible anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they they updated and corrected things, as they say, based on the la- the latest scholarly research and evidence, but. Um, yeah, it, it is. And and Luther himself would have argued that every translation of the Bible is a commentary because you're making choices about which words to translate Absolutely. and how to translate them. And you know this as well as I do. There are some Greek words that have 14 definitions. Yeah, they call that semantic domain. Yeah, and you've got to decide, is it the first definition or the 14th definition that fits the context of this this verse? Well, and I sometimes will argue... I think it, it might be multi. There might be mm-hmm. multiple layers of meaning here. Sure. That it, that it suggests, you know, uh, mm-hmm. this sense, but it could also suggest this sense. You know, right? That, that it was intentional word choice. That isn't that it isn't clear, but that it it could right. be understood both ways. And like in Paul's case, he's using words that are in common usage in Greek, and then using them in a theological sense, like baptism. Right. He uses baptiz baptismo in a completely different context than the Greek world would use the word baptismo. And as a consequence, then he's adding theological freight weight definition to a word that if you said it on the street, if it's like saying washing dishes. Mm-hmm. If I said, I'm going to go to church and get washed this morning, how, how would people understand that word washed? 
I'm going to church to get washed. What? You're going to go to church to take a bath? What do you right. mean? Well, right. no, I'm going to be washed in the blood of Christ. It's a, it's, it has different definition to it. And so, when, yeah, when you read philosophical Greek, you'll run into certain words that Paul uses, but they have a completely different meaning. And sometimes, though, they're reflecting uh, a picture that's given to us in Scripture, like the, um, the legal or jurisdic- you know, jurisdiction language mm-hmm. of justification. Right. I think yeah. that's quite quite intentional you know mm-hmm. um, by paul working through the spirit to very much because so. we have that picture uh, presented um as god as judge from right from the psalms for example right and that's that's the the divine foxiness is that the spirit uses human words to communicate his word to us mm-hmm. and human pictures right life experiences and human pictures right that he Dr. Nagel, in one of his sermons, uh, to pose this question, for example, he uses the analogy of the grasshopper and the person. That is, if you asked a grasshopper, what is it like to be a person, a human Hmm. being? The grasshopper couldn't possibly comprehend what it's like to be a human being. He doesn't have the language. He doesn't have the reference point because he's a grasshopper. Unless he was once a human being. Unless he was once a human being. And this is Nagel's point, is that in order for me to be able to explain to a grasshopper in his own language, according to his own images and concepts, I would have to become a grasshopper. And that's exactly what God does. In Christ. Is he becomes a person and then communicates with us in our own language, in our own, with our own imagery, sheep, grain, you know, things that we can grasp and, and get traction. In a hen with her chicks, right? Right, exactly. And so it's not as if the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven and says, here's a different language that, that God speaks. And that, you know, I just hope you understand what we're talking about, but rather in his divine mercy and foxiness, he takes up our dictionary and says, this is what it's like. Yeah. Well, and even the apocalyptic uh, writers, you know, like uh, Ezekiel or or St. John Revelation, Mm -hmm. or even Paul, he talks about going up to the whatever level, heaven. He's like, in the body or outside the body, I don't know. What I saw, what I didn't see, I can't even, whatever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It was nuts. That's all he can say. There's no words to describe what I saw. No. And so imagine then, Dr. Luther, lecturing on the Psalms, convinced that he's got the right formula for interpreting scripture. And then in the midst of the Psalms lectures, it all Mm. falls apart. (laughs) The wheels come off the bus almost immediately in the Psalms lectures. He just doesn't have a spare tire. Yeah. Yeah. And so... It's actually mm -hmm. really challenging if you want to run the exercise to try to apply that fourfold method to every text of scripture. It's Mm -hmm. not... You have to get pretty uh, Mm -hmm. wacky. Well, and here's a really kind of practical application. Go talk to a group of people who aren't Lutherans, if you're Lutheran, and then exegete the Bible, do a Bible study with them, or do a, uh, do a, like a Bible class, and, and see how they respond to your categories of law and gospel, and how you distinguish law and gospel, and when, especially in the Old Testament, when you're like, this is Jesus. Right. This is the second person of the Trinity. Because if you're like... Uh, like like us, you will make assertions. This is what mm-hmm. the text means, and they'll say, "Well, that's not what it means to me." <laughs> exactly right, and that's because they're operating from that category of, um, you know, we we interpret scripture, not scripture interprets us. Right. Mm-hmm. So, methodological basis and argued about the consequences the principle would have. So, ultimately, the reason that you don't want to break from this fourfold method of interpretation is because it messes with our tradition. Ah. Oops. Yeah. You're, you're, you're mucking up the business. <laughs> but the scriptural principle could become scriptural practice only once the Bible was discovered to be more 
than a collection of various kinds of truths and proofs. Hmm. When it was recognized as having its own message, one which decided about life and death, and thus had to be interpreted out of itself, out of its center, and then I wrote in the cross of Christ. Yeah, so that's scripture interprets scripture. That actually mm-hmm. is scripture itself as is right. is unified, even though being whatever sixty six plus or minus books written by many different authors through spans of you know yeah. many thousands of years, um, God the Holy Spirit being in and through the whole thing working uh, this message, the center message. And this is not actually unique to Luther. The humanists pushed this hard, as did at the time of the, Ren- the Renaissance. This came out of the Renaissance, which is the the ad fontis back to the source. Hmm. And so for Luther coming out of this, being influenced by the humanists, everybody was influenced by the humanists in one way or the other at that time, because it was there were so many humanist movements popping up all over Europe. Ad fontis, go back to the source. Yeah. And therefore, that's why people started publishing Hebrew uh, lexicons and Greek lexicons. And this is why Erasmus and a guy named Via in Spain were trying to translate the Greek New Testament in the um, mid to late 1400s. Right, but the difference being, um, you could approach the text with presuppositions that it's. I'm oh, sorry, to... mid to late 1490s, not 1400s. Let's go back to the text, but but we only want it to confirm what we already hold true, right? Correct. Whereas, um, so I, I find this happening quite often. We go back to the text, we let the text speak, and then we find out, oh, that's mm-hmm. something we were blind to before that we didn't even recognize that we were holding right. to some error. Uh, really some sin. Well, and also you don't interpret scripture because we have the the Lombard and we have the sentences and we have Bonaventure and we have Gregory of Rimini. We have all of these doctors of the church, Thomas Aquinas. They tell us how to read the scripture. They've already answered all these questions for us. And so what Luther is expected to do when he lectures on the Psalms is simply to get together all of the quotes from these other church theologians and then recite them. Right. So you memorize Lombard sentences because it mm-hmm. had all the answers. Exactly. You don't have to interpret scripture. It's already been interpreted for you. That's the tradition. And remember, in the Roman Catholic Church, tradition is equal to the scriptures. Equal authority. That's right. Equal authority. Exactly. So Luther is not expected to think. He's no. just expected to quote the sentences, for example. And so the idea that scripture interprets scripture, that's fine, as long as you allow tradition to interpret scripture for you. <laughs> And so, yes, Scripture interprets Scripture because the Lombard says this is the way the Scripture is interpreted. Mm, okay. And we do this in the present tense. Every generation goes through this. Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, yeah, but what do our dogmatics tell us? Or what do we want the Scripture to tell us? Like, right. Like, we want the Scripture to tell us that America is uh, one nation under God, right? Yeah. So, sure. we can find texts to, you know, in a sense, to prove that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like the psalm, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, blessed is the, is the nation whose trust is in God or something like right. that. Well, right. Yeah. And scripture was used to justify slavery mm-hmm. and to justify war. And we mentioned Nazism can, and yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, again, a wax nose. Hmm. We can bend it any way we want to justify where we're at versus there's a word of law and there's a word of gospel. And the, as Luther says, what the, the, the theologian is the one who can properly distinguish law from gospel, mm-hmm. which he then follows up by saying only the Holy Spirit can interpret law and gospel, but grammatically so, we can interpret law and gospel. Only those in the Spirit then will, yeah. will understand the Scripture. Very much so. Yeah, it's a, almost like a syllogism. Mm-hmm. So the risks involved in paying careful heed to the Scriptures 
in finding the thin line between using and abusing were described unmistakably by Luther in a sermon that he preached in 1515 on the anniversary of his baptism. Quote, Whoever wants to read the Bible must make sure he is not wrong. For the scriptures can easily be stretched and guided, but no one should guide them according to his emotions. He should lead them to the well, that is, to the cross of Christ. And then he will certainly be right and cannot fail. There's Ed Fontis right there. There it is. To the font. To the font. To the font, which is the cross of Christ. Which is the cross, which is the source. Right. And maybe in 1515, he doesn't quite understand exactly Mm -hmm. what he means by the cross of Christ yet. Mm -hmm. You know, is this a, you know, virtuous example of dying for the sin, you know, dying for your neighbor? Right. The Ars Moriendi, which again is a very popular late medieval practice that Mm -hmm. is the art of dying are you going to die well Mm -hmm. well do you die as christ died do you suffer as christ suffered then that's a good death yeah so designating the cross of christ as the standard of exegesis is evidence of reformation decisions made prior to the turning point that Mm -hmm. many scholars date the reformation breakthrough is happening so in the first 10 years luther recounts he read the bible through twice a year His growing understanding of the scriptures led to differences over correct interpretations, then to the theologians' and prelates' dispute, (laughs) and finally to the conflict of the church. So it starts off as an academic debate, Mm -hmm. then it becomes a political debate, and then it becomes a churchly debate, a churchly debate, a churchwide debate. So the clash of opinions had not been provoked by the printed pages alone. The Reformation reached the people because of a surprising conclusion Luther drew from the scriptural principle he had known for so long. The scriptures must be preached. Huh. Yeah. So the way that they would use the scriptures um, would be as an accessory to whatever message they wanted to give. Right. Well, remember, too, there's no such thing as a, a sermon the way that we understand it today in the late Middle Ages. Plus or minus 20 minute, you know, well, interpretation. Well, it wasn't text. a sermon. It was, yeah, you would stand up and you would read pre-written, quote unquote, sermons, but you would, they would be like book reports. Mm-hmm. And they're more moral exhortation than anything. Well, and even Luther's, uh, the, the, the record of Luther's, especially early sermons are mm-hmm. like, uh, it's like a news report sometimes. Right. Right. And, and that's what the pulpit was for. And it was understood to be that way. It was a community because, activity. Yeah, 100%. And so, yeah, you went to church to hear the news of what's happening in Austria with the Turks, for example, mm-hmm. or what's what's happening with the price of corn this week. <laughs> All this stuff was involved with going to church because mm. they didn't have the internet or telephones or newspapers, really. Mm-mm. And so, yeah, the scriptures must be preached. So Luther famously said the gospels were never intended to be written down. They're meant to be preached. The gospel is meant to be preached. It's not meant to be written down. And therefore, the only thing that necessitated writing them down and recording and preserving these these epistles and these gospels is persecution. So that they would and, be sustained, right? Yeah, right. Preserved. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what he means, though. When he, mean, when he says the gospel is never intended to be written down, it's meant to be preached, he's not saying the New Testament isn't valid or it was an afterthought. He's simply saying, Jesus says, go out and do what? Proclaim the good news mm-hmm. to all nations. Go out and baptize all nations, teaching them what I've commanded you. You're supposed to go out and preach. That's the purpose. And so he can look to the example of Philip, for example, in the Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah. 
that what does Philip do? He takes up the, the scroll of Isaiah and he proclaims Christ and baptism to the eunuch. And of course, that's then the, the eunuch is, is going to ask about baptism. What's right. prevent me from being baptized? Yeah. Well, and this also fights against enthusiasm because Luther would argue, you can sit down and read the scriptures. However, faith comes through the proclamation of the gospel. External word from a preacher through which the Holy Spirit works to change your heart. So can you sit on a bed in a hotel room and read a Gideon's Bible and be converted? Luther would argue, no. You can have faith according to the law because you're interpreting God's word in your own heart apart from a preacher. And Luther would argue that you can't necessarily preach to yourself. Well, and even the Gideons recognize that because they put their own little catechism at the end. You're right. To try to uh, distill or really to preach... Um, mm-hmm. what, what they believe the, the text teaches, which isn't quite in harmony with what we confess. Not quite. Uh, not not quite. quite. It's more Baptist. <laughs> a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so for Dr. Luther, anything that we do that tries to put the word of God inside of us, so to speak, against the God within ism, that's enthusiasm. That's the old Adam. That's the work of the devil. In fact, in the Small Called Articles at the end, he talks about this, right? That any word of God that comes to us apart from a preacher is the devil. <laughs> That is that the word of God is meant to be preached, not preached to ourselves, not preached in our hearts or our imaginations, but rather God sends us a preacher to declare Christ Hmm. in such a way that, yeah, we are converted and brought to true faith. Just saying that in the present tense, I already can hear people cringing. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Because we're so bent on... Well, I can read the Bible and I can draw my own meaning out of the Bible and I'm Orthodox because I've been confirmed and catechized. So I know how to read the Bible and distinguish long gospel. And I don't need to go to church and hear a preacher because uh, I can read the letter to the Galatians and blah, 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 blah. Mm, no, the whole reason you can do that is because you have a preacher or had a preacher. Right. And as preachers, we know um, to craft the a sermon that does mm-hmm. properly distinguish the law gospel, that does preach Christ crucified is not as easy as it sounds. Right. It's actually really just struggle and and difficulty and sometimes painful even. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Some are easier than others for sure. But yeah, no, it's an exercise. It's a discipline, but it's also an art. Well, we had it last week. We had the uh, text on the destruction of Jerusalem, which is not an easy word from Jesus to hear. It is not. And I wrote two sermons last Sunday because of that, or yeah, for last week. Go. One was on that, and it, and I looked at it the next morning, or Sunday morning, and went, too harsh. Yeah. <laughs> not, enough, not enough gospel, too much law. It was like nine-tenths law. Uh, and the text, the text itself is... Is, is nine-tenths law. Yeah, nine-tenths exactly. Law. Right. And uh, we were doing the Creed and Adult Bible Study, and we were on the third article, so the reading from 1 Corinthians was on the Spirit, mm-hmm. so I preached on the Spirit instead. Yeah. Well, when I did we're the still text... upset some people because, once again, the Spirit runs all the verbs of salvation. Yeah, that's true. I heard, that, so, I heard that one little phrase, the things that make for peace. And so I ran with yeah, that and said, oh, yeah. yes. No, he has provided those things for us. Um, and, and even amongst my people who I would consider to be extremely well catechized in the sense that they can actually like repeat the catechism to me and take it seriously now and appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, even for them, it's still a little restrictive to say the Holy Spirit runs all the verbs of salvation, the Holy Spirit keeps and preserves us in the church. The Holy Spirit lays out our good works for us to walk in that really the Holy Spirit is taken responsibility for all of faith and life. Yeah. And that, yeah, you need a preacher. And this is the key point. What what chafes people, even my folks who, uh, who respect and adore me, it's that statement, you need a preacher. 
Because at the end of the day, they want to be free to not have to yeah. rely on a preacher for God's word. Well, they hear that as authoritarian, right? Exactly. A little pope in the pulpit. Or uh, or the man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, the man coming down on me again. Yeah, he's, he's telling me how I have to, what I have to do and how I have to be and da-da-da-da-da. Which is the old Adam not recognizing the preacher as gift, but mm-hmm. as burden. Yeah. Oh, I got to pay for this guy to stand up there and lecture me every Sunday? Hmm. Versus I got I get to go to church and listen to this guy give me the gifts every and had, Sunday. And he has the audacity not only to say that... Um, he speaks with authority. <laughs> yeah, that to speak with authority, but also that we're going to sing um, sermon, basically sing sermons, yeah. that our yeah. hymns are not going to be what makes right. us feel good or right or whatever, but they're right. going to actually preach the same gospel to us, uh, law gospel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or we're going to retain a, a liturgy that does the same. Um, that's that's Kyrie to Gloria, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, to Agnes Dei. You know, we're gonna we're gonna hear those songs right. because it preaches Christ because they preach Christ properly. Which we like so long as we have control, right, over how it's how it's delivered and how it's received. Hmm. But yeah, that's the point: is that Luther's scriptural principle is the scriptures must be preached. Yeah, let the scriptures have their way with you, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, right. Um, but listen to them, or as Jesus mm-hmm. says, listen to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Sir, we would have you show us Jesus. Right. So, because heresies threatened the living apostolic message, it had to be recorded in a book to protect it from falsification. There you go. Mm-hmm. Preaching reverses this process of conservation again, allowing the scriptures of the past to become the tidings of the present. Right, so the song of the angels is proclaimed from heaven. It's recorded in mm-hmm. the book. Then the, the preacher records or proclaims that message again as if he was in the, the angel tense. in heaven. You know, an angel from well, heaven. Well, this is the way I was taught: is that the gospel is always present tense because it's for you. I come bearing good tidings to you of great joy. For, exactly, uh, it's for you. you. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if the gospel is preached in the past tense, it's not good news for you. It's good news for the people that it was preached to in the past tense. Mm-hmm. Much like what Dr. Luther will say around the Lord's Supper. Why do we go to the Lord's Supper? To receive the benefits of Good Friday in the present tense. Yeah. It's not, were you there when they crucified your Lord? Uh, no, you weren't. Um, but and he nor is do here. I need to be. <laughs> yeah. Right. He yeah. Here he's here you. with me now. Right. Which is such an interesting thing that we want to locate ourselves spiritually 2,000 years ago rather than just going to the Lord's table. I mean, I'd like the idea of, I've never done it, but to go... Um, say to Israel and, and mm-hmm. tour the sites and see the places and all that just you know historic uh, for that historic data or even mm-hmm. even just geography just to learn like how far apart are these places you know kind of get a yeah. feel for that um, but I don't feel compelled to go there in order for my faith to be confirmed right correct or to right. go and gather some water out of that messy river Jordan so that my baptism or my kids baptisms are like Jesus's baptism right well I'm sure if you go far enough up river, river there's a tertiary plant mm-hmm it's like my doctor father tells the story. They were in Switzerland hiking the Alps and they were thirsty because it was noon by the time they had gotten kind of halfway up the side of the mountain, three quarters of the way up. And so they stopped and there was this beautiful mountain stream, literally like right out of a movie or a picture where there's rocks and the, the frothy white caps and <laughs> it was beautiful. And so they, they, they filled their canteens and his wife comments to him about how much better the water tastes up here in the mountains than it ever does back home. And then they hike the rest of the way up this side of this mountain and they get to the top of the mountain and at the top of the mountain is a cow pasture. <laughs> and and so what they were drinking was was the waste from the cows. 
because the cows were standing and defecating in this river. <laughs> but the rocks purified this, it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. At least it added mean. mineral content. Right. Again, that's the problem with uh, faith through the first article. <laughs> it's like, just a this matter of perspective. So pure and it's mountain springs and it's, it, I feel so close to God drinking this water. And then you get to the top and there's cows standing in this pool and uh, urinating and defecating into the water, which is then flowing over the side down the river or down the mountain. Hmm. Yeah. Good times. Good Ignorance times. is bliss. Sometimes it really is. Mm-hmm. And therefore, yeah, we don't have, hist- we don't have faith in historical events. We have faith in the present tense because those historical events are, they proclaim Christ. Mm-hmm. And since he is the Alpha and the Omega, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the perfecter and tetelest, or the author and tetelestire of our faith, um, the gospel must be preached and it must be present tense because it is for you. And interestingly enough, the only of the, of, of the four types of interpretation, the only one that actually is even close to present tense is the mm-hmm. moral Jesus. Yeah, right. 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 That's a good point. But everything really else, the, the typological or you know, the, the future tense, that's the anagogical, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the literal even is, is historic. Um, yeah. you know, they're they're not present tense. The only one that's present tense his in the medieval schema was here's here's the life lesson for you. Right. Which yeah, ironically is pretty much where we are today, at least mm-hmm. you know, in modern uh, Christianity. Well and again it appear it appeals to the old Adam. It appeals to our enthusiasm. Mm, yeah. Because, as I've said before, if the if the goal and the purpose of the law is love your love God and love your neighbor, love requires an object, and that makes it difficult because I can't love myself to heaven. I have to love God and I have to love my neighbor. I'm commanded to. That's the purpose of the law. Jesus Himself says that. So therefore, that's messy because my neighbor's outside of my control. Mm-hmm. I can't control his or her actions or thoughts or whatever or whether they want my love or not. But obedience to the law. That is inherently selfish because it's about me yeah, interpreting and then obeying the commandment. Yeah, to do check, checking off all the boxes and right. having something to show and for it And my neighbor just exists then to help me personally get up toward heaven, to climb that ladder. That's why obedience is so appealing to us and why love is n- almost never mentioned in sermons nowadays. Yeah. Or if it is mentioned, it is, again, a kind of love that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, it's emotional. It's the emotional response to our obedience. It is emotional, or love itself becomes the obedience. Hmm. You have to be a more loving person because that's what Christians do. Ooh. It becomes about behavior again. Yeah. But that is inherently selfish versus being selfless in the way of love, the way that Jesus presents it to us. Well, it does answer the question why um, when when you and I are more resistant to any kind of preaching that sounds like behavior modification mm-hmm. um people are resistant to that they're like no tell me what to do you know even in in, in personal conversation like well, tell me what yeah. to do like i'm not comfortable telling you what to do i don't know who your neighbor are i don't know your situation right. i i know um what christ has done for you that's what i can tell you right and how that works out in your life um mm-hmm. you know be reflective consider your consider your right. your life Consider it according to the Ten Commandments, if you like. <laughs> right, right, exactly, as Dr. Luther says. Uh-huh. And you were predestined to walk in good works, but I don't know what those are, because I'm not the Holy Spirit. No. 
And now, so, yeah, you're right. We have the Ten Commandments, which kind of give us a, a, a direction. Framework, right? A framework that, yeah, these are, these are, this is the framework of the good works. You'll walk and you'll love your neighbor in the way of honoring your mother and father, not murdering, not committing adultery. But how that, the, these are variables or right. absolutes. I'm sorry. These are absolutes. But the variables within your own life, your own vocation, again, you work at a tertiary plant. I'm a pastor. She's a student. You're a grandparent how these work themselves out in your vocations, how these good works happen in your vocations, that's the Holy Spirit's work, not mine. And so that would be arrogant and presumptuous of me to tell you what right. good works you should be doing or how you should be obeying the commandments versus love your neighbor selflessly. Yeah, but wait, that's hard to quantify. <laughs> exactly. Plus and it sucks. And to qualify, quantify, qualify. You can't right. really check it off. Like I've done it, I've finished it. Or Right. Well, it of, sucks because... I, should qual- I gotta qualify that. It sucks because your neighbor may not be open in- to receive your love, or it may be someone you hate that that the Holy Spirit leads you to love, or the way that you would um, that you, they they need to be loved is not something you're comfortable with. Exactly. Yeah, I don't want to sit up at two o'clock in the morning while you get drunk. You're drunk again, mm-hmm. and you've relapsed again, and I gotta haul you into rehab. And get out of bed, and leave my family to take you to to the center. Right. It's like you know, why can't this be more convenient for me? Hmm. Or why do I have to go through this every time? Why is it me that you call? Yeah, convenient or comfortable or mm-hmm. yeah, even doable, right? Yeah, it's like one person said that a lot of what passes for friendship nowadays is just I need a therapist, but I can't afford one, so you're it. <laughs> so I'm gonna dump it's, on you. Yeah, exactly. It's just I need I need you right now because I need to dump on somebody. And that's, it's hard to love somebody in that situation because you realize you're being used. Mm -hmm. And like you said, though, the best way to love your neighbor in that situation is not to try and fix them or help them, quote unquote, help them, but simply to listen, recognize what they're doing, love them and preach Christ to them. Mm -hmm. Recenter them in their identity as a baptized child of God versus their marriage isn't going the way they want, or they're not, their career path isn't the one that they had chosen for themselves, or Mm -hmm. their kids are tearing them apart. Whatever it may be, they don't like their church or they're unhappy with their pastor or something. Preach Christ, preach baptism. Yeah. So, all right, let's wrap it up. We got this last paragraph here. And this is a little bit of sarcasm on Oberman's part. He's a little cheeky here. That's all right. So he writes, so I'll provide the preface again. Preaching reverses this process of conservation again, allowing the scriptures of the past to become the tidings of the present. And so the Bible is a necessary evil. Tongue in it cheek. is n- tongue in cheek. It is necessary because without it, man's spirit will claim to be holy, and there will be no way of proving him wrong. Mm-hmm. Scripture becomes evil, quote unquote evil, when as a hollow pontifical document, whew, it petrifies in holiness instead of being publicly proclaimed in the church as the living word. The gospel has been committed to a lifeless paper. Fresh words can transform it into glad tidings again. Footnote 56. What is that? Boom shakalaka. He's one of those end of the book, end notes kind of guys. Uh, aggravating. Well, I'm sure it was probably a decision of the publisher, but. That makes it more readable in a sense. But... I guess. But then you got to go to the back and find the chapter. And... Right. Essentially, what I'm saying is I'm lazy. That's what I'm saying. But scri- scripture is evil uh, when it's just about moral teaching, right? Right, when it's just, what does he say? When it allows us to claim to be holy. Mm. 
And there's no way to prove us wrong because like you said, it's a moral teaching. It's an obedience thing. It's a behavior modification thing. And therefore it's up to me as the individual to act out and manifest that obedience in my life. When I like, uh, and I like his contrast using the term petrified holiness against right. living word, right? Mm-hmm. So petrified holiness, it's like, it's, it's a dead, it's a dead thing. It's mm-hmm. tablets yeah. of stone, you know? Yeah. Whereas a living gospel that it, it's living and active, it's reforming, changing, um, right. creating faith, uh, sustaining right. the church. You know, <laughs> it's our lifeblood. Yeah. Or Christ is. Fresh words can transform it into glad tidings again. Fresh is another living word, right? Instead yes. Lifeless right. paper. Like mountain streams, fresh water. What's the reference there? What is that? Chapter, are we in chapter five? 56. Yeah, in cha- I don't know what chapter Chapter five. Right? Yeah, this is chapter five. 56. Weimar Ausgaba, five. Psalm 1745. Oh, there you go. So he's pulling from the psalm. Yep. So that's the point uh, we have been making throughout is that, yeah, in the Psalms lectures, he's not, quote unquote, the Reformation Luther yet. But the Psalms lectures, are that's where the Holy Spirit begins to go to work on him and leads him into the forest, so to speak. And it's the Romans lectures then that clarify that, you know, separate all the trees. But as I've argued uh, from my own research and what I was taught by my professors like Kittleson and, and others, the, the Psalms lectures are really where Luther, where the Holy Spirit gets a hold of Luther with the, with the verbs of salvation and uh, how the way he was taught to interpret Scripture may not be faithful to Scripture. And that's, it's interesting because I think one of my theses about the life of the church is that the, the avoidance of the Psalms liturgically mm-hmm. is because right. of... Um, how uh, dangerous, like you know, that dangerous to the old Adam, I suppose. How dangerous those yeah. those words are, and because they they're they're so vivid and directive. There's a few yeah. that we kind of latch onto, like um, Psalm 23, you know, right? The, the, the quote unquote soft language. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a comforting image, even though it, <laughs> it has is. rod and staff in it, which uh, right, are, which is if you understand shepherding, that yeah, it's definitely not soft. That's not soft language, but but. That we avoid the Psalms because of how um, uh, effective they are upon us. Savage they are. Mm, savage, <laughs> yeah. No, and I, we, I, I've talked about this too on the show before. I think we talk about this often in Bible study is compare the piety of the psalmist to your own piety. Mm. And look at how anemic and petrified, to use Obermann's term or Luther's term, look how petrified your piety is that you're afraid to actually challenge God. Yeah. You're afraid to come before God with the worst of your sins, or you're afraid to actually point to the person across the street and go, God, can you crush that person? Yeah, the imprecatory Psalms. Yeah, that God is a warrior and he does not tolerate other gods and he does not tolerate enemies trampling his people. He is very fatherly in that sense, I think. Um, and like you said, he's like a mother hen. Yes, he's very fatherly. Yes, is he com- is he presented as a mighty warrior? Yeah, he rides a chariot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> his clouds are the ch- are the chariot, and the lightning are his are his weapons, his spears. Um, and he yeah, and the cherubim and the seraphim are with him, the the host of heaven, the army of heaven. Right, but to and, pray against your enemies, uh, as right. the psalmist does. Um, well, if we're very careful in how we read those, you'll see that he's actually asking God to be the one who takes vengeance. Right. Yes. According to his will. Time. Right. So here's how I feel about this situation. This is what mm-hmm. I would like. This is what's on my heart, right? As to my enemy and my um, yeah. what I would like you to do to them. Um, but but you alone are judge. Uh, act according to your, you know, your will, your judgment. And so right. leave it leave it to God. Um, right. 
No. But get yeah, but, just did a devotion the other day on Psalm sixty seven. And oh. this is the point of Psalm sixty seven is he's praying that God would rule the earth through his grace and mercy. Hmm. But in order to do that, you've got to crush these people hmm. who are in the way of your grace and mercy. And he's not talking about necessarily enemies outside of Israel. He's actually talking about people in the house of God. Oops. Who come and go with uh, no faith and are essentially, yeah, they're enemies of the promise. They're enemies of, of God. And yeah, I wonder how that would change our piety if we took the Psalms in hand the way that Luther and the monks did, for example. Mm-hmm. And that was the center of their piety and their prayer. Well, that's the point. They teach us how to pray, mm-hmm. but, but they're also, you know, as we can see here in Luther's own uh, lecturing, careful study of them. He had already memorized them at that point, but mm-hmm. but his careful study of them to teach them um, <laughs> that it's it, they really changed him. Uh, Absolutely. And they probably changed us too. Well, and think about it this way. He memorized them in the Latin Vulgate. And then once he gets a hold of a Hebrew reader in 1505, and then begins to learn Hebrew. When he does the Psalms lectures, he is translating the Psalms from Hebrew into German or Latin. And so that's another aspect of this as well, is that he memorized them in Latin, but then when he starts reading the Masoretic text, he discovers variants in the translation and realizes that the Vulgate, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is largely based on the Septuagint, the Greek translation? Yes, yeah, it was, it was, not, it was not from the Hebrew. Right. So there's that too, is that it's also a grammatical matter is that when Luther's translating these things, he's saying, oh, wait a minute, this is not the word in the Vulgate. This is a different word. Yeah. And we have extant copies of the Septuagint, which predate, um, you know, the birth of Christ. So yes. um, we can see where um, the Septuagint authors, where they make um, theological decisions in the way that they Correct. translate from the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but very odd. in the present tense, you and I know this too. We we have these joking, these collegial debates between the Septuagint people and the Masoretic people mm. about who's got the more accurate <laughs> text, right? But and by and large, the fun, Septuagint but... and the Masoretic text agree far more than the Septuagint and the Vulgate. Correct, hundred percent. Yeah. So that's another wrinkle in this: is that Luther's translating the the Bible. He's not just reading the Bible; he's translating it now because he has actually the tools and the resources to translate it. Mm-hmm. And yet that was very, like I said, 1505 is when he gets his first Hebrew reader. Before that, it was very difficult to find, one, a Hebrew reader, because they just didn't exist, and two, to find somebody who actually spoke Hebrew. Well, yeah, as far as Hebrew manuscripts go, I mean, it's an oral tradition largely, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as far as manuscripts go, I don't know at the time of Luther, but even today, the, the mm-hmm. oldest manuscript is about 1000 AD. Mm-hmm. There's just well, aren't there's, I've read that. Inter- I've read a lot of essays or not a lot of I've read enough essays by scholars to that point out that essentially the Jews had to reinvent Hebrew in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. yeah, because it pretty much been lost because of Greek and and Latin, um, and so yeah, the Masoretic texts were floating around, but there weren't a lot of Jews even that could read them. No, well, and think about it: the modern uh, state of Israel mm-hmm. uh, resurrected what was a de- dead language, correct? <laughs> so they and they had to create. Um, new Hebrew words for all these right. um, modern right. inventions. So just think about that. In fact, um, you and I, we were talking about this yesterday, Leopoldo Camacho, who uh, is Colombian, and he translated Luther's Galatians, 1535 Galatians lectures from German into Spanish, German and Latin into Spanish. And then he did such a good job of doing it that then um, he translated it from Spanish into English. And it 
I've used the Middleton edition, which is the first English edition of Luther's Galatians lectures for a long time now, because it's as close to the German, I think, as you can get in English. But the Middleton edition was published in the 1540s. Hmm. So it's dated language-wise, but it's still good, really good. And in comparison to the 20th century translation, I prefer the Middleton edition. And Camacho comes as close to the Middleton edition in the present tense as anybody I've ever seen. But more readable. Much, much more readable, yes. But the reason is because he's not a native English speaker. Hmm. And so he's doing the work of an exegete, but he's wrestling with the text in translating it into his native language and then translating it into a secondary language. Because, yeah, he's fluent in English. Um, that's not the problem. It's just that's not his. Pro- it's not his first language, mm. and so think about that. That it's the same thing. You're you're working through this translation process. You're working through this discipline of translating the text, and in translating it, you're forced to make decisions. Right, but you're also being, you know, hopefully very careful mm-hmm. in communicating um, the intent of the original. Right, it's a very serious, very serious matter because again, it is a matter of life and death. Right. Well, I think we've talked about this in previous show, but like you know, one of the criticisms of the Vulgate is the whole doctrine of penance mm-hmm. is is yeah, drawn is drawn from that particular you know decision that Jerome made in translating mm-hmm. the Greek into into Latin, right? Which is not what it says in Greek, mm. and so it's a yeah, it's a, we would call that a very loose translation of the original language, mm-hmm. but it influenced yeah the entire the entire Roman Catholic system is built on a bad translation of of the text, the Luke text, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, instead of when you are repented, it's do penance. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, instead of a passive, it's now active. And yeah, it influences, it has a big influence. In and fact, because it, because it's in place for um, more than a thousand mm-hmm. years now, uh, it's it's just instilled in all of Christianity. We can't talk about repentance without somebody asking about, well, what do I have to do? Right, and it's 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 flowing out of that misunderstanding that was institutionalized. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Mm. <laughs> it's and it, that is it kills people. It kills souls, murders souls. Yeah. So this is I like this about. We might have to come back to Overman do yeah, another episode on him. I like again, like I said, he's very readable, and there was a, he did a lot of heavy lifting in three or four paragraphs. He did well, and it's very it's vivid. I mean, he's made the point that yes. the, this the Psalm lecture. Of 1513 and 1515, those lectures are um, instrumental on Luther's. They are, and shift. as he points, he alludes to, they're often dismissed by Luther scholars. Well, and honestly, I mean, they're not as useful to us like now. If we're going to like do, a, mm-hmm. we're going to do a Bible class on a Psalm. Uh, Correct. To, to pull from those lectures, mm-hmm. uh, you have to you have to have your critical ears on. Right. That's why there's right? four volumes of Psalms lectures in Luther's works, mm-hmm. because yeah, those the the, the dictata super saltarum. Yeah, you don't want to use those in Bible study necessarily. There, there but are the some helpful stuff. insights, but mm-hmm. but there's there's a lot of medieval theology. <laughs> there is, and I think this is that's a good, a very important point to to pause on is if you're not familiar with late medieval Roman scholastic theology and you're not familiar with Luther kind of as a whole in a general sense or a specific sense, you got to be super careful then because you like you pointed out with doing penance, you just assume the argument of the very thing that he's fighting against. Mm-hmm. Because you don't recognize he is trying, he is struggling with it, and he's trying to fight his way out of it. And so, yeah, you can read those early Psalms lectures, and and he sounds very Roman Catholic because he is. He's very Augustinian, and if you are an Augustinian learning leaning person, whether Protestant, Roman Catholic, or Lutheran, you're going to fall into the ditch, and say, "Well, see right here, Luther says, Luther says right here." It's like, well, yeah, he does in fifteen fifteen, 
but you'll notice by 1518, he's abandoned that. Mm-hmm. And he's redefined that term. He does this yeah. with grace by the, by like 1527, 28. He's basically abandoned just using the term grace without qualifying it because he understands Roman Catholics don't understand grace the way that I'm using it. And now these other folks that are broken away and form their own reformations, they don't understand grace the way that I'm defining it. Right. And so I can't just throw the word grace around and assume that my readers understand what I'm talking about. Well, and I had an elder in the congregation ask, you know, why don't we use in our official title as a congregation, why don't we use evangelical? Why is it always just Lutheran? And we Mm drop the evangelical Lutheran part. And, um, you know, and, and it's really because of that, because the word today contextually means something very different to most people, mm-hmm. to, to an outsider especially, um, and we're, we want to not necessarily distance ourselves, but at least distinguish mm-hmm. ourselves from those who would call themselves evangelical right. today, which aren't necessarily even of the gospel. Correct. That's the irony. You know? right? So it's the same it's thing actually, with grace, you know, joint declaration on the doctrine of justification mm-hmm. does that with both grace and justification. Well, I was going to say the prayer last Sunday actually did this. Mm, that's true too because we prayed that we might grow more and more that we might grow more and more in grace that's not lutheran that's roman catholic that's a thoroughly roman catholic prayer well we might grow more and more in grace yeah and cramner didn't disagree with it either no he did not that's Mm. true so it's a loaded term because it seems nice it seems pious it seems like a good thing to pray for that we would grow in grace more and more so long as you don't understand that grace is a person right well, there's the that challenge is, in saying, well, we're going to continue to pray this prayer because it's historic. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> it's a tradition. There's a tradition. There's the petrified tradition. Yeah. We're overruling what we already know to be true from the scriptures yeah. of what grace is. Who grace I think is. another way we might say it too is it calcifies. These terms get calcified. That they, they grow this like thick epidermal epidermal layer hmm. of, of, of history and definitions and meaning that have been loaded on them over in every generation and then when you get like you said evangelical in the present tense it's so calcified that the original like we really can't even use it anymore because the original meanings has almost been completely lost incidentally um that's that's what happens with people who have seizures which i know full well in my family right Um, you have enough seizures that follow the same neural that's right that Mm -hmm. pathway calcifies and you can't not have seizures there right it actually it becomes like a permanent pathway that's true. Mm. That's why CBD is so relevant in the present tense because it actually reverses that. Correct. And works to decalcify those pathways and rebuild them. Yeah. So the brain is, there is plasticity, but we need to mm-hmm. uh, encourage that. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. interesting. Side note. Anything, anything more to add on No, I like Obermann? This. this is good stuff. Yeah, it's good. So I have to dig it yeah, out of my come back. box, one of the 30 boxes in my study. I like it. Maybe next week, next time we'll come back and we'll actually read about the consequences of this teaching. Nice. Because chapter six is entitled, The Reformer Attacked. <laughs> so maybe that'd be something to look at too. But, ooh, mysticism and Tauler and Staupitz. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Mysticism. Since we were talking, we were alluding to mystic theology actually a little right. bit. Yeah, a little bit enthusiasm as it's often called by lutherans so yeah thank you as always for listening to the podcast thank you uh everybody who attended conferences this summer we're recording this after conferences now it's august 9th conferences are over and done with so again it was phenomenal um everybody we sold out and uh at least i don't think we had any gross bodily injuries or deaths this summer no thursday true the thursday incidents were few if if yeah 
So good job, everybody who attended for not breaking or, or damaging yourself on Thursday. Nobody fell Due into to, a manhole. <laughs> nobody fell into a manhole like in uh, Mech One. Although we're going back to Mech One next year, so fingers crossed. But, <laughs> but um, no, we don't, really do. Don't appreciate worry, it. We, you sign a waiver, so <laughs> nobody's it's responsible. All it's all good. But we do. We truly appreciate and love all of you that come, and it's fantastic to interact with the kids that show up and. Um, Especially, uh, I did plenary in Carlton with Pastor Borgart, and the conversations you have with the youth before and after, especially as you get deeper into the week, and um, it's it's just irreplaceable. It's just a wonderful time, and uh, so thank you for supporting the Ministry of Higher Things. Be sure to go check out the website, check out all the podcasts. Uh, we just started republishing what's called going to be called the Legacy Cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're republishing um, Higher Things Radio, right? Because uh, they're sitting there in the vaults in the archives and they're not being accessed. So we thought we'd start putting those back out so you can enjoy them all over again, or at least have a good laugh about the way things were in 2008 or 2014 with higher things radio. And (laughs) be sure to text pastor Borgard or Sandra or uh, pastor Buto even um, about those, those episodes. I think there's one up today. Actually, I put up with Buto, uh, Mm -hmm. Osta Yep. and Borgard about uh, the gospel and fallen pastors and so forth. So go check that out. Um, Check out the articles. We'll be publishing more and more legacy articles too from Pastor Swirla and um, what? Heinz, Bompsch, Kuhlman. Uh, Kuhlman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hist- from the history of, of higher things and kind of running up to our anniversary. Right. Coming up your 20-year anniversary. So go check that stuff out. Please support the website. Uh, you can find our, all of our stuff on social media. And if there's a book or an article that you'd like to see us read, go ahead and shoot us an email at higherthings.org. Is that it? Higherthings.org? Yeah. Uh, you can send oh. it to media at higherthings.org. There we go. Media at higherthings.org. I should mm-hmm. know that as the content director. but That's the best place. Central Clearinghouse. Yeah. It'll get to us. There we go. Yeah. And we will uh, certainly take seriously uh, anything you throw at us. and uh, As long as it's Lutheran. As long as it's as Lutheran as it gets. <laughs> Very good. But uh, thank you again. I appreciate it. We appreciate it. And we appreciate your support for this podcast. And to all the listeners, share the podcast with your family and friends. Uh, email a link to them. Subscribe, please. Uh, leave a positive review for us so it gets bumped up in iTunes. So it's more uh, available to people. More eyes on the prize, so to speak. But uh, come back next week for a brand spanking new episode. Same bat time, same bat channel. See ya. You summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor. I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant. And delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about Coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. 
Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address, so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee know-how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. Coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant. And it's delicious.